0: Welcome, everybody. My name is Makal Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians, episode 47, Islamic History, circa 619, The Year of Sorrow, Part 1, Khadijah and Abu Talib. One very common historical myth is that ancient people had extremely short lifespans, that A person could expect to be dead anywhere from ages 30 to 40. You know, any person, you know, that is who wasn't killed in a war or disease or something. You know, 40 was old age. You know, anything past that, as some people would say, is just gravy, a bonus, unexpected life. Now, this isn't true. This wasn't true. But it's an extremely easy mistake to make because... From a certain statistical perspective, it's sort of true, because this perception is based on the average lifespan of people who are born, but it's an overly simplistic statistic that provides little context. For example, if there were three siblings, and one died like right away, just a few days in, and the other two died at 75, the average lifespan of those three would be 50. Now, is that realistically the lifespan that each person could expect? Not really, because the infant death just dragged down the average in a very, very extreme way. And this is how I like to view ancient lifespans. That if you make it past the first few years of childhood, and through the numerous childhood diseases that just didn't have any treatments or vaccines back then, and if you didn't die in a war or giving birth, the lifespans of the ancients really weren't all that different than our lifespans. So if you made it to adulthood, you know, living to 70 wasn't crazy. Maybe 60 or a bit later is the age when those old age diseases kind of start to creep in. You know, when suddenly a zillion diseases rush the door and eventually one of them is going to get you. Now, these people never went to doctors. Of course, a doctor of that age is not like a doctor now. A doctor of that age would probably do more harm than good. Yet their bodies were resilient enough to get them to what would be considered, even in our time, to be retirement age. Just the the natural resilience of the natural immune system, just the natural healing power of the body, you know, without intervention, could get them pretty far. Now. Of course, from a modern perspective, you look back at these people, and you notice, hey, they ate whole foods, and they abstained from sugar, and they got plenty of exercise. And the Muslims had the extra advantage of staying away from alcohol. Of course, there would also be class divides in these lifespans, not necessarily because the rich were getting better health care, but because they were actually getting enough food you know, to not die of starvation. Because until very recently, hunger was just the norm for the majority of people in the world. And I mean very, very, very recently. Uh, Here's a true story to back that up. My wife came to this country as an infant, and she was a few days away from death by malnutrition. So (laughs) the resulting health problems still follow her too. You know, it's not that, oh, hey, you made it. You know, we can just put that behind you. Malnutrition in uh, in childhood just causes all kinds of problems. You know, um, unsurprisingly, she's not very tall. <laughs> uh, yet, a few decades later, we adopted a child from the exact same country. And this child is in the 98th percentile for height among children her age because she got plenty to eat. So early nutrition is critical to lifespan and quality of life later on. You know, still people live to 60 and beyond, and it wasn't that abnormal of a thing in the seventh century. You know, again, that is if they survived, you know, to have the potential to grow old, you know, again, they didn't look that different than we did. And that, is what takes us to the topic of this history episode, which is the first part of the Year of Sorrow. Now, the Year of Sorrow approximately spanned the year 619, but keep in mind that anyone in Arabia was thinking in terms of the lunar year. Still, I think 619 is a good place to just put this. You know, it's okay to think of it as a a year as you understand it. Now, it is called the Year of Sorrow, uh, which is a phrase that came from Muhammad himself. Because two of Muhammad's closest family members died. First, his wife Khadija, who was probably sixty-five at the time, succumbed to some mystery illness during this year. And then Muhammad's uncle Abu Talib, who was really more of a father to him, died at age eighty-three, or eighty-six, or ninety. I've also seen late seventies. No one knows for sure. But the point is, even by our standards he had lived a very full life. So you had two people well over 60 in my country, they would qualify for social security and Medicare. They're that old. Um, And that's why I wanted to point out that there's nothing super extraordinary about them living to that age, you know, so don't get the idea that it was some kind of crazy miracle that they made it this far. So, basically, the reason I'm telling you that is to drive home the idea that this wasn't necessarily a natural death. So, what does this have to do with the malnutrition I was talking about earlier? You know, there is spen- plenty of speculation that the malnutrition brought about by the boycott weakened both of these people enough to push them off of the mortal cliff, so to speak. Because many of the boycotted were reportedly eating leaves and grass. That's something you only do if you're pretty desperate. And it's going to be a gigantic stress on the body. And the mental stress of that probably didn't help much either. And, you know, there are a ton of historical specifics on this. I mean, there are not many historical specifics on this. It's mostly just speculation regarding what actually killed these two. But the timing of Khadijah's death is just impossible to ignore, particularly because she was younger than Abu Talib, and not to mention a woman. You know, they live a little longer. Her death could have been a coincidence, or maybe directly linked to the boycott. You know, it's not just malnutrition. You know, their little village on the outskirts of Mecca was probably a breeding ground for some nasty ancient diseases. But again, she wasn't young. But also she was not quite old enough to automatically assume that old age killed her. So was it the boycott? Maybe. And for the record, we're also not entirely certain about her true age either. Just a quick aside on that. You know, not only do we not know whether the boycott directly killed Khadijah or really indirectly, if you think about it, Some historians dispute that she was really 65 at the time. That's not, you know, a solid fact. And there's a very obvious reason for why people might be skeptical of her age, because according to her listed age, she would have been bearing children well into her fifties. The speculation is that therefore she was younger than her listed age. Although, it's an interesting point, but I'm not really sure I agree with that. There, there's no reason that a fit woman of 40-something or even 50-something could not give birth. It would certainly be an outlier, but it's hardly impossible. You could expect complications with the health of those children, and there certainly were. Of course, it's just as likely Khadijah's lost children simply encountered diseases that their weak bodies couldn't fight off. There's really no way to untangle that with any certainty. And there's a religious component to this story, too. This is a religion in which a previous prophet, a guy we know as Jesus, was born to a virgin. And if you remember your Old Testament, Sarah was very old when she gave birth in the biblical story. So, at least from a faith perspective, is it really a stretch to believe Muhammad's 50-year-old wife had children? Uh, A senator in my country did that very recently, actually. And she doesn't even have legs. You know, it can be done. Now, regardless of her true age, the most important part is that Khadija died after a brief illness and just left a Jupiter-sized hole in Muhammad's heart. I just, I can't overstate the devastation this presented For Muhammad. She was so much more than Muhammad's wife, and she was irreplaceable in every sense of the word. All of Muhammad's later wives knew they could never replace Khadijah. Even Aisha, his favorite wife, once he took up polygamy in his later years, was actually jealous of a woman who was not only far older than her, but six feet under the desert sand and dead. And how could she not be jealous? Khadijah wasn't just a wife. She was a peer to Muhammad. She was Muhammad's equal, a woman who could stand on her own two feet. Yet she was a wife and mother in addition to all of that. She was an intellectual and a woman of faith. We're talking about the first Muslim here. Irreplaceable. You know, in my own mind, I always think of Khadijah in a way similar to the way I think of my own grandmother. Uh, someone who was equal to her husband and did things that women of her age simply did not do at the time. And think about Muhammad and Khadijah's relationship in the context of Muhammad being the messenger of God. He's the messenger of God. How many messenger of gods are there? People like that seldom have peers. You know, it's isolating. They don't have people who can challenge them and stand on an equal footing. It's such an important thing to give someone true company, a truly intimate partner and peer. And Muhammad would never have that again. And I have to believe that an introspective person like Muhammad, who is almost an extreme version of an introspective person, that he knew that. And he probably realized that a large section of his life had just been removed forever. Muhammad would later say this about Khadijah. The best of the world's women is Mary in her lifetime, and the best of the world's women is Khadijah in her lifetime. That's from Sahih al-Bakari. And here's another quote from Muhammad referring to Khadijah. Indeed, her love had been nurtured in my heart by Allah himself. so yeah that's what muhammad's future wives were up against and that's the loss the community was suffering not just muhammad and this wasn't lost on someone else who loved muhammad as almost as much Khadija, as khadijah loved him that would be his uncle abu talib who was the head of the tribe of the banu hashim Now, I again, mean, if you see the word banu by the way by the way i think that just means tribe you know you're here banu you know banu hashim banu whatever you know it's the second part that counts not necessarily the banu those are clans usually within the tribe the larger tribe of the quraysh so not long after hearing of khadijah's death abu talib died as well now did the boycott kill him did it weaken his body to the point that opportunistic infections and diseases took him out a few years before his time you know, like with Khadija, that's impossible to know. Mostly because the list of what can kill an ancient man in his 80s is even longer than the list of what can kill a modern man in his 80s. So whether he would have died anyway is unknown. But we do know the impact. <laughs> and we'll get to that in a minute. But the boycott and the death of Khadijah is something that could easily tip someone over the edge, if not physically, you know, mentally and spiritually, you know, and just all those kind of ways in which, um, you know, sort of a person's life intersects within the body, mind, and spirit. And it's kind of strange what eventually kills people sometimes. And I don't mean disease or old age or the obvious physical causes of death. I'm talking about what pushed them over the edge mentally or spiritually. Because in many cases, it's circumstances that kill people. Not always, of course. You know, sometimes a tumor is just a tumor. Smoking causes lung cancer. That's pretty simple. But sometimes, and I've seen this personally, even one life event can cause a cascade of other events that result in someone's deterioration and ultimate death. I've seen it multiple times, actually. You know, when the person dies, you look back and you can clearly see the event that eroded the person's will to live and started this process. And in the case of Abu Talib, it's just possible that it was Muhammad's prophethood, ultimately, that killed him. That was the event that started the cascade of events that would lead to Abu Talib's death. Just to give you an idea of what a man of this age was dealing with, here are some of the things Abu Talib was facing in the run-up to his death. There was the boycott, an intra-tribal strife, you know, strife within the tribe that was caused by Islam. And then protecting his nephew and somehow protecting his clan at the same tra- time, you know, trying to do right by both. The logistics of his makeshift refugee camp during the boycott. You know, he had, after all, invited these people. So I'm guessing he had a pretty heavy responsibility there. And surely there was some insecurity about his position as tribal chief. That's always going to be in the back of your mind. Because tradition was propping him up. But he didn't have much more to offer than that. It seems he died a rather poor man as well. You know, and leaders in their 80s need all the help they can get. You know, leadership ages you. And if you're already old, it just might kill you. And just for the record, I have no idea what actually killed Abu Talib. And neither do you. And neither do the greatest historians that have ever been or ever will be. It might have been the stress caused by Muhammad's prophetic career. Could have been the flu. But here's my personal take for the worthless pittance (laughs) that it represents. I don't really see anything in the stories, limited as they are, of Abu Talib or Khadija that actually suggests that their spirit really had been broken. You know, they died after the boycott, after all. And even during the boycott. Both had plenty of purpose in their lives. You know, Khadijah was a mother and a believer. There's plenty to live for there. Abu Talib was holding his tribe together. He had every reason to want to live. So my guess would be that this was a physical ailment, probably a disease for Khadijah, one associated with frailty in close quarters. Uh, Tuberculosis, for example, I think that would fit pretty well. And maybe Abu Talib just died of old age. Now Khadija, I'm pretty sure, died very peacefully. You know, someone who was a woman of faith, someone reassured of the afterlife. Um, she had every reason to be okay with dying. But I kind of hope Abu Talib found some peace in his death too. You know, because... Even his physical death, the final moments, were not peaceful and pretty chaotic. You know, Even as he laid in his bed, ready to die, Abu Talib was mediating a, neg- a negotiation between Muhammad and the Quraysh. Now this, in the end, came to nothing. And then, in the end, when he was about to die, it was just Abu Talib and Muhammad. Muhammad begged him to accept Islam. You know, that way he could intercede for him on the day of judgment. You know, ever the practical and stoic character, Abu Talib refused to become a public Muslim. News of his conversion, he reasoned, would put Muhammad and his family in danger. Besides, the Quraysh would assume he only said it because he was trying to escape death. You know, not that Islam could bring him back to life. But keep in mind, only Muslims thought God was going to raise them to eternal life. Pagans just die. So, does this mean that Abu Talib was actually a Muslim in his heart? We'll have to let God sort that one out. I, I've read convincing accounts that he was, but those accounts are based more on sort of hope and logic and character study than actual historical sources. Because really, people are complicated. They just are. And just because Abu Talib believed one thing doesn't mean he believed another that seemed related. You know, we are all living, breathing contradictions, and I doubt Abu Talib was any different. The actual historical sources, in this case, the Hadith traditions, are not too encouraging from the Muslim point of view. Uh, here's one. Narrated Al musayb When Abu Talib was in his deathbed, the Prophet went to him while Abu Jahl was sitting beside him. The Prophet said, O oh, my uncle, say, none has the right to be worshipped except Allah, an expression I will defend your case with before Allah. Abu Jahl and Abdullah bin Umayyah said, O oh, Abu Talib, will you leave the religion of Abdul Mutalib?" So they kept on saying this to him so that the last statement he said to them before he died was, I am on the religion of Abdul Muttalib. Then the prophet said, I will keep on asking for Allah's forgiveness for you unless I am forbidden to do so. Then the following verse was revealed. Meaning this is in the Quran. It is not fitting for the prophet and the believers to ask Allah's forgiveness for the pagans, even if they were their near relatives, after it has become clear to them that they are the dwellers of the hellfire. And another verse was also revealed. O prophet, verily you guide not whom you like, but Allah guides whom he will. Um, If you want to look those up, the first one is Surah 9, verse 113. And the second one is Surah 28, verse 56. Now, For someone who believes in God, that's just not the happy ending you want to hear. Although, in another hadith, it appears Muhammad is convinced that he can keep Abu Talib in the shallowest of hellfire, you know, j- just up to the ankles. Uh, unfortunately, purgatory isn't really a thing in Islam. But again, it's not like any of this is locked down and certain, because Muhammad is not God. Muhammad doesn't know any of that for certain. That's why you hear, so often, something along the lines of, Allah knows best. And that's probably sound advice for Christians, too, because no one knows all the ins and outs of the afterlife. That's the realm of God, not of Dante and our imaginations. Um, Dante wrote the Divine Comedy um, a very, very long time ago, uh, which includes the Inferno, and that's where a lot of sort of Christian imagery of hell comes from. So if God exists and God is good, especially if you believe that God literally went through hell for our sake, as Jesus did, I think everything will unfold as it should. And just keep in mind that there's a huge difference between willful disobedience and honest error. You know, there's a difference between deliberately lying about God and honestly misunderstanding God. There's a difference between being skeptical that something is holy and, on the other hand, willfully denying that holiness while understanding all the while that it really is holy. You know, just being cynical about it for whatever reason, usually personal gain. You know, there's a very big difference between an intellectual error and an ego-driven denial. That may have sounded like ego-driven denial is what I'm trying to say. You know, that your ego caused you to willfully deny maybe the existence of God or the superiority of God. You know, because the same words are often used to describe these things in religious texts, the intellectual error and the ego-driven denial. But it's important to parse out the difference between these two. So God wants your heart, and if he has that, that's a good sign. Did Abu Talib have God's heart? Or I'm sorry, did God have Abu Talib's heart? I don't know. Now, regardless of Abu Talib's situation and where he went after his death, you know, life went on on earth and that's where the impact of his death was certainly felt. You know, Muhammad was still here and so were the Muslims and the political fallout here just can't be ignored. This was a huge, huge problem. You know, would Muhammad's tribal protection hold? Because without Abu Talib, would the tribe just give him up? The situation would soon be complicated and precarious, you know, which is not something you want to hear when your actual life may be at stake. And it is at this point uh, that Muhammad knows that he and the Muslims will need to find a new home. So in that way, The year of sorrow is a massive historical turning point. And the sorrow will actually continue, even beyond this point. And I'll get to that in the next history episode, which is the second half of this horrific year. Now, interestingly enough, I've never seen anything even hinting that Muhammad considered joining the other Muslims in Abyssinia. Which is something to keep in mind, because it seems like an obvious destination, doesn't it? I mean, that would be very logical. You know, he was now in the situation as all of those other people who had migrated. You know, he had precarious or possibly non-existent tribal protection, but rather than become a refugee, he instead defi- decided to find a new tribe. Um, a new place where people would listen to his message and take him in. Now, we all know that he successfully did this eventually at Yathrib, later to be named Medina, but that was not his first try. We'll get into his first failed attempt at this in the next history episode. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.